0: listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life Moscow Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Good morning, Life or family. I'm so glad that I get to be with you today, I, and I, I'm so excited that I get to be with you in this series. Uh, right now, we're, we're going through this series of Forever Changed as we continue to look at different lives of people that had an encounter with God, how God encountered them, and then how their lives changed. And when their lives changed, it didn't only affect them and and change things for for them. It also changed things for us because now we get to look back at their stories and see how it changed them and what that means for you and I. And then on top of that, uh, today I get to talk about Saul, who later became Paul. Uh, Saul of Tarsus. And um, every time I think of Saul of Tarsus, I kind of think of uh, fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Saul of Tarsus, he's the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I don't, I don't know why they run together, but that, that's a little peek into how my mind works. Um, so as we've been looking at uh, Saul, it's definitely been interesting to kind of see what it means to be Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes Paul, who wrote most of our New Testament. So he's a very significant figure in, in our lives today because we read so much of what he said. And I wanted to, to take a peek into the mind of what it would mean to be Saul of Tarsus because before he was Paul, he was Saul. And when he was Saul, he lived in a, a long, full life. And those life experiences that led up to him being Saul, turning into Paul, all played a part into who he was after he became Paul. And so I I started looking into what it means to be Saul of Tarsus. For for instance, what or where is Tarsus was a good question for me to start with. And we we have this map. Uh, Over on the left side here, you have the seven churches uh, from Revelation. And then in the bottom, you see Tarsus. So this is modern day Turkey. So uh, this is a place of commerce for starters, being located on the Ocean like they are, or the Mediterranean Sea, you're gonna have tons of ocean-based commerce as well as anyone traveling from uh, Europe is gonna have to go through this section in order to get to Israel, in order to get to Africa, and many times even to get to most of the Middle East, they're gonna go through Tarsus. So immediately, Tarsus is a city of commerce. Being a city of commerce, and Saul being from there, he would have spoken multiple languages because he would have to speak Greek in order to get along with the people there, and he'd also have to speak uh, Hebrew because he's from a good Jewish family. And so he he's already has at least two languages, if not Latin and Aramaic as well. So he's more than likely multilingual. So he's, he's a pretty smart guy. And on top of that, Tarsus is also a city of education, We can relate to that because we have two major universities, so we can kind of understand being a center of education. Um, But even for Tarsus, it would have been an even greater center of education. Uh, Some people said that as Athens is to Greece, so Tarsus is to the Roman Empire. It's a huge center for education. So Saul is going to have the opportunity to learn of a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different religions, a lot of different educational perspectives, because you have so many people coming and going in and out of Tarsus. So he's going to be pretty familiar with other people and where other people might be coming from. And the thing to think about, though, is Saul is in Tarsus. And in the same way two University of Idaho graduates living in Boise aren't going to send their new student off to BSU, Saul's parents aren't going to send him to these Gentile universities in Tarsus. The University of Idaho grads, they will send their child to the University of Idaho, where they went. Saul's parents send him to Jerusalem because they want him to learn with the best and the brightest. They want him to learn with the smartest. They want him to learn with their people about their God and no other gods. And so they send him to Tarsus, or they send him to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he studies with this group called the Pharisees who have their, all their tenets built on two major philosophies. One, they will love God. Two, they will honor the Sabbath. Or more simply put, they will follow the law. As you and I might say, read your Bible and pray, they say, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and honor the Sabbath or follow the law. Those are the two things that they focus. Those are their two greatest commandments as far as they're concerned. And so, over and over again, Saul would have been taught, follow the law, love God, and follow the law over and over again. And they, they built most of their perspective from, from one story in the Bible. Uh, their, their perspective was built on the story of Phineas, which, when I heard that, I was like, great, what's the story of Phineas? And I had to go look it up. And in Numbers 20, 25, is where we have the story of Phineas, where... He, the people of Israel are living in a place called Shittim. And they've, as they've been living there, they started intermingling with the Moabites or the Gentiles who were there. And as they've intermingled with the Gentiles, they've become marrying them and started uh, kind of letting the Gentiles into their community. But what was even worse about letting the Moabites in is they started worshiping the gods of the Moabites. And so the more they worship the gods of the Moabites, the more they started to drift away from the one true God. And as they drifted away from the one true God, he says, no, you can't do this. You have to stop, but they wouldn't. So over and over again, he says, you have to stop, and they wouldn't stop. So finally, he sends a plague. And when a plague shows up, he, all the people are like, whoa, God, I'm sorry, how do we stop this? How do we make it stop? How do we fix it? And God says, okay, if you want to fix it, you need to kill the leaders who led you astray, and stop worshiping these pagan gods. And so they did. They uh, killed some of the leadership they, and went away from these, the craziness. They started focusing just on the one true God and there, shortly thereafter, Moses and uh, Phineas are hanging out talking together and they, they see a guy come walking into the camp and when they see this guy come walking into camp, he's bringing a Moabite woman with him. But God just said, No more Moabites. No more gods of the Moabites. And they see this man take the woman into his tent and Phineas says, no. No, we just fixed this problem. We're not doing this anymore. So he grabs a spear, follows them into the tent and pins them both to the ground in one stroke. And that's the story of Phineas. That's the story that they have built their faith on the story of killing people who let the outsiders in. And the reason they built their story on that is because of what happens next. Then the plague against the Israelite was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. So 24,000 people died because they started worshiping these other gods. And the Lord said to Moses, Moses, Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my anger from the Israelites. Phineas pinned them to the ground, and that's how he turned God's anger away. Since he was zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of God and made atonement for the Israelites. God makes his covenant with Phineas. So the Pharisees are looking at that story and saying, ah, that's how we get God's covenant. We follow the law and love God over and over and over again. And so Saul was raised and educated as someone who was told that story as where they start their conversation. He was told that story as we follow the law. We love God and we follow the law over and over and over again. Because as soon as you stop following the law, you start letting Gentiles in. And when you start letting the Gentiles in, you start marrying them. And when you marry them, you start worshiping their gods. And when you worship your gods, things like plagues, Assyria, Persian, Babylon, they all start showing up and over and over again, we die. And in the days of Saul, the people that were destroying them were the Romans, which means everyone wasn't following the law, which means Saul has to find who isn't following the law and help them follow the law, do whatever it takes. Because under the Roman rule, Saul's family is in jeopardy. Any siblings he has, his friends, his neighbors, his whole, whole community is in jeopardy because Rome, Rome is Rome. They're not nice, they're not gentle, they're not friendly. You either follow their rules or they will make you follow their rules or kill you. And they got good at killing people. And so, Saul says, we have to get rid of Rome. And the way we get rid of Rome is we love God and we follow the law. So, then we have to enter into Saul's world as Saul is trying to love God and follow the law. And all of a sudden, he steps into a room with kind of the high priests or with the uh, Pharisee leaders and the Sadducee leaders. And he walks into the room to to see what they're talking about. And they're, they're talking about how they've been able to capture Peter and John. And so they have Peter and John in captivity and they're trying to decide what to do with them. And that's where we enter into the story in Acts 5. When they heard this, they were furious. Peter and John just gave them a big discourse. The big discourse was, this is the history of Israel, Jesus is God, and you killed him. So they were furious. And they wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin. Now, it says he's honored among the people, which... To you and I, were like, oh yeah, he's honored, so he's a really nice guy. People kind of respect him, they, they think well of him. Well, more than that, he's honored. And they live in an honor-shame culture where if you're honored, when you stand up and speak, everyone stops, the room goes silent. Anyone that might have even been thinking about something else is now purely focused on what he's about to say because he is honored which is more respectable than a judge in his own courtroom. He is honored. And so the people listen. And he stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all of his followers were dispersed, And it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean, different than the Judas Iscariot that we know, appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail but if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So he says, do you remember this revolt with the Thutis guy and the other revolt with the the Judas guy? After Thutis and Judas died, the revolts died too. And when we go ahead and consider that Jesus is dead at this point, they go ahead and think, well, then their little... Band, they're a little crazy group, their dirty, rotten, Gentile-loving Jews are gonna die off too. Or, Plan B, if this is of God, it's not gonna die off. And not only is it not gonna die off, but if we kill them, we are actually just going to be making it worse for ourselves because then we're killing some of God's people. And if we're standing up against God, then we're definitely in the wrong. We know that for sure. So they do the only logical thing because his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. They ordered them not to go speaking in the name of Jesus and let them go because they didn't want to, like, kill them, but they definitely wanted to just, you know, beat it out of them, if you will. And so they let them go, and away they wandered, But meanwhile, you have to remember, Saul is sitting in the room, standing there watching all of this go on in front of him. And his leadership just said that the Gentile-loving Jews get to keep going. His leadership just said, it's okay, and it's gonna be all right. We're just gonna try it for a little bit. And in the back of Saul's mind is the story of Phineas, where the leadership had gone astray and the leadership had to die. And Saul's not going to kill his leadership, but he is certainly not going to sit by and let them do this. Because Rome is still there, they are still under occupation, and people are hurting. The Jewish people are hurting because Rome is there, and Rome is there because Gentile-loving Jews are letting the Gentiles in and worshiping the wrong gods. And this is all going wrong. And it's just going to continue to go wrong the longer they let it go. So Saul says no. And that's where we meet Saul for the first time, there's a band, a group of people that have all gathered together and they've managed to get uh, Stephen, who's one of these Gentile loving Jews. And Stephen gives them this big discourse. It's going to sound a little familiar. This is the history of Israel. Jesus is God, and you killed him. And so, of course, that enrages them. And as they're all enraged, they stone Stephen, and Stephen. And I, Saul just stands to the side holding their cloaks. I just imagine he's like, just kind of nodding gently, like, yeah. Yep, this is the right thing to be doing. Way to go, guys. Uh, as a matter of fact, Acts 8.1 says, Saul approved of their killing of him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered out Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. You see, Saul knows this text. And after that story of Phineas, he knows what it means to love God and follow the law. And he's gonna help these people follow the law. And God made Saul to be a passionate, driven man. And so he's not gonna do it quietly. He's not going to do it through some organized structure. He is going to grab the bull by the horns and get it done over and over and over again in houses, dragging these people off because he wants Rome gone. He wants freedom from the oppression. And this is how he believes he needs to do it. And he didn't give up. Because then when we run into him again in Acts 9, it says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples because these people were letting the Gentiles in, which leads to God's cursing over and over again. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Now, fun fact, the high priests weren't Saul's leaders. Remember, he was raised with the Pharisees. So for him to get an endorsement from the high priest, he's actually going to the opposite end of the political spectrum. This is about akin as the lead news anchor at uh, CNN needing an endorsement, but he can't get an endorsement from CNN for whatever news story it is that he wants. So he has to go to the lead news anchor at Fox News to get an endorsement. Not exactly something that's ever gonna happen. But Saul does it. He so believes that the way you're going to change the world is by going out and getting this endorsement and continuing to rid the scourge. And so he goes to Damascus. And he went to the priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, the trip from Jerusalem to Damascus is no short jog, That's about 200 miles at the equator in the desert. I want to say it's at summer. I have no idea what time of year it was, but I like the idea of it being summer because then it's a little extra and more difficult. Now, 200 miles is about from here to Yakima, and he walked it. He's not necessarily an affluent man, and nobody's probably bankrolling his little trip, so he walked From Jerusalem to Damascus because he believes he's going to change the world and he didn't do it alone because he knows better than to go alone because he knows how to change the world why would he do it alone why wouldn't he show other people how to do it and bring other people along to show them how to change the world how to fix Israel how to make the world better and so he doesn't go alone And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? He knows who he's talking to. He knows who just showed up. And who just showed up is supposed to be the person that he's loving. He's trying to love God and follow the law. But the Lord just showed up and said, why are you persecuting me? And now Saul is really confused because he doesn't know what he's doing anymore. Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground but when he opened his eyes he could see nothing. The men traveling with Saul because he found a way to change the world and he was going to do it alone. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For the three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord. Very much like You see, Ananias has been faithful. Not only is he following God, not only did he get the message about Jesus, but he also chose chose that that message was his message, the right message. So instead of saying, love God and follow the law, Ananias' life is dedicated to love God and love your neighbor. And when God says, go to Saul, Ananias says, oh, God, that guy? Have you heard about that guy? Do you know what that guy does? Do you know where he comes from? Do you know what that guy is going to do to people like me? When people like him and people like me are together, I generally, "Eh, it doesn't work out well. kind of ends poorly and I die. And God says, I know. I need you to go do it anyways. I gave him a vision where you are going to come to him and you are going to heal him. And When Ananias shows up, when Ananias does heal him, immediately Paul, Saul, repents. He's baptized and he repents and his life is changed forever because now this man that is full of passion, full of zeal and full of vigor has a new direction. He's no longer focused on love God and follow the law. He's now completely focused on love God and love your neighbor. But because he's full of zeal and passion Oh, he cannot help himself but to tell everyone that he has found God and he has found the truth. And so over and over again, he goes around Damascus telling people. and as he tells people in Damascus, people in Damascus say, "We remember you, and you're telling the wrong story. you're supposed to be here to do the other thing, where you're, you're here to say, uh, "Love God and follow the law." So what is this whole? Love God and love your neighbor thing. And then that quickly devolves into they're trying to kill him. And so he leaves and he goes back to Jerusalem, which means he walks it again in the the desert in the summer. And when he gets back to Jerusalem, he isn't tired and kicks his feet up, throws on some Netflix, and eats some bonbons. No. He's the passionate man God made him to be. His zealousness is not just to do what, is not just for killing people, it is to change the world, to set people free. And so he starts telling the people in Jerusalem about how Jesus is the Messiah, about how you should love God and you should love your neighbor. And the people there say, remember you. This is the wrong message. I think we're going to kill you. And so when Saul hears that people are going to try and kill him, he packs it up and goes back to Tarsus, which I don't have any facts about what, what it would be like for him to go back to Tarsus, but I have to imagine he went back to Tarsus and had to sit down with his family at some point. And his family sent him to the school of love God and follow the law. And he just showed up now singing a new tune about love God and love your neighbor. So I'm guessing that was probably kind of an awkward conversation around the dinner table with his dad, trying to figure that out. But fortunately, Saul's passion and zeal never gave up. Fortunately for you and I, because you and I get to be a part of the kingdom, because Saul continued to spread the word between his missionary journeys, between his ability to travel and spread the gospel through his ability to write most of the rest of our New Testament. Saul's life changed everyone's life in here and praise God for it. And so as we kind of wrap up and head into a time of communion, um, we're gonna look at some implications, kind of some different ways that this is a little bit more applicable. I, I know we've been able to look at a lot of, a lot of interesting information, but I, I wanna bring that down to something a little bit more nitty-gritty, something we can put our hands on. And uh, as the trays go by, um, we have an open table when it comes to communion. So please take the elements, hold them, and we'll take them together in a few minutes. And if you believe Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, we invite you to participate with us. Uh, So the first implication we have is, are you showing up in your own life? So, I've been able to talk about how Saul was constantly active when he was, whether he was doing the wrong thing or the right thing, he was passionately doing it. He was following it, going after it because God made him to be a zealous man full of energy and zeal and he never gave up from that passion. He never stopped showing up and being an active participant in what God was doing. Are you participating in the way God has made you because Saul was also an intellectual. So if you're more of an intellectual because and you don't relate to the zealousness of Saul, then are you participating in your intellect? Are you using your intellect for God's purposes, for kingdom purposes? Are you using your intellect to change the people around you and show them truth? Or more like Ananias, if you're like me, quieter, a little bit more of behind the scenes kind of person, then are you still being present and taking risks even behind the scenes? As you consistently show up and, and get things done, are you willing to take risks? Risks like inviting people over for dinner. Like if you don't, if you don't have something to focus on as like your mission in life, then let's just try to change our neighbors' lives, literally or figuratively. If it's some your work neighbor, your neighbor as you walk down the street, anyone, can you invite them over for dinner? Can you? Use this message, use these words as an opportunity to show God you are active in your own life because at the end of the day, the thing about this that hits me hardest is if I'm not willing to show up in my own life, why am I surprised God isn't willing to show up in my life? So maybe the next question to kind of think about is who do you bring with you? I remember when when Saul was on his way to Damascus he was going to change the world and he knew how he was going to do it and he was going to make the world a better place and he brought people with him because he knew he couldn't do it alone so who can you bring with you as an intellectual who can you train or who could train you who can teach you or who could be your running mate your partner your teammate as a behind-the-scenes person, who behind the scenes can you work with as, as your partner, your teammate? Who can you bring into the community? Who can you bring with you? Because God didn't make us to do this alone. And when you do show up, do you overcome adversity? Remember, being present and active in our own lives, we are going to run into adversity the same way Saul did because when he was in Damascus, people were trying to kill him. When he was in Jerusalem, people were trying to kill him. And who knows what happened when he got back to Tarsus. But as you participate, are you overcoming adversity? Uh, the, the, the thing that keeps coming to mind for me is, if, if I'm try, as I'm trying to be more present in my home, if I come home and I'm trying to be more present with my wife and I'm trying to ask her questions or have a conversation, she's not receptive to it because I'm trying to get outside of the three normal conversations we have every night. What's for dinner? It doesn't matter which one of us is cooking. How was your day? And what do you want to watch on TV? And if I'm trying to get outside of those conversations, but she had a bad day and can't receive it well, that's not her fault and not an excuse for me to stop showing up. Or maybe I'm trying to be, as I'm trying to be more present with my toddler, he's too... And so if he's being too, that's not his fault. And it's a little bit of adversity, but I have to overcome it. Because as we show up and as we're present, there are going to be moments of adversity. And so we can mentally prepare for those moments. Oh, I'm going to try this thing. It's going to be new and different. And then if I don't do, if I'm not awesome at it, I'm going to have to get up and try again. Just like Saul kept trying. He kept taking risks? Are you willing to keep taking risks even in those moments where there's going to be some adversity? Or like Ananias, God showed up in Ananias' life and his go-to was to make excuses. That guy, oh God, that guy, oh do I have to? I kind of have a soccer game to go to. My favorite show is going to be on TV. I don't know if I have time for that right now. When you're trying to be present, when you're trying to be active in your life and God shows up, when he shows you where he's working, do you make an excuse or do you just lean in and take a risk? Oh, the last one, this one. Who are you not willing to forgive or let change? Sorry, this one has been working me over for weeks now, which is wonderful and terrible all at the same time. Because at the end of the day, the people of Damascus were not willing to let Saul change, and they weren't willing to forgive him. The people of Jerusalem didn't want Saul to change, and they weren't willing to forgive him. And Saul kept going anyways. And worse than that, Ananias almost didn't let Saul change. but because he did and he was willing to overcome himself and forgive Saul and heal him, you and I have the whole rest of our New Testament. And to our knowledge, Ananias only affected the life of this one man. Ananias only affected the life of Saul, which means he was reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time and it changed your world and it changed my world and it changed the whole world. even at their time, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers, all because Ananias was willing to let Saul change, forgive him, and heal him. Ananias showed up for one person, and the church was strengthened. In my own life, the reason this has been beating me down so much is because when I was 21, my dad chose to leave and when he left, I chose not to let it go. And for seven years, he lived completely separate from me. I have no idea where or what was going on for the most part. And because he left, I never really forgave him. I definitely never really let him back into my life. And so because of that, I have no idea what his life was like when he, when he died. And I have no idea who he was when he died or how he might have changed, how God might have worked in his life. And I understand that there are healthy contexts of how to forgive people, but we've first been forgiven and taking healthy steps towards forgiveness can change the world And God is inviting us to that conversation of forgiveness. And so as we go into this time of communion, we're remembering how we were forgiven. We're remembering that on the night of that last supper, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And this bread, he used as his forgiveness. As Him being present and active in our lives to remind us of His forgiveness, that He loves us. Let's remember Him. And the cup, He took the cup, the cup we cannot drink, the cup that we drink now, only because He drank it for us. In those moments of forgiveness, Christ was fully active in our lives and in his. Let's remember him. Lord God, we thank you and praise you for this morning. Thank you and praise you for the way that you continue to show up in our lives and that you are active. That you are active around us and in our community. Please be with us this week as we go that we would remember to be active in what you're doing in the way that you work. And the way that you connect and show us how that we, we can love you and how we can love our neighbors, Lord God, that we'd be constantly looking to see how we can join you in what you're doing. Probably all these things in the name of your son. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, Have a great week.